Ladies and gentlemen, from time to time, radio programs of vastly individual and divergent types. As far as I'm concerned, this project is a lot more important than that cosmic ray bomb they're testing out in the Pacific tonight. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program. An interesting piece of news. Start beating those signals, Mark. Oh, you. Oh, what's for you? I might as well tell you the whole story. Here is your host and master of ceremonies. Welcome on in, everybody. This is Matthew Keevil, and oh yeah, that new intro gets me jazzed. You'll be seeing a lot of new things coming to the podcast uh, in the next little while. We have been, as they say, catching fire. That's right, the Northern Miner podcast is rising in popularity, and we're doing really well with a lot of listener engagement and user interactivity, so I'd like to thank everyone who's been with us since the beginning, because it's been a great ride for Leslie and myself. And things are really catching fire, as I said. So uh, we'll probably see more resources coming our way. That means better production values, better guests, uh, more interactivity with our user base. So it's going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to seeing where we can take this awesome medium that we sort of created here. Uh, we carved out a niche, as they say, in cyberspace uh, for ourselves. And, and, and once again, I'd like to thank everybody who's uh, loyally listened to the program and uh, followed us along since the beginning. Uh, I know I remember it was just Leslie and myself sitting in a room gabbering at the beginning and we had uh, two mics and very little production value I didn't even have a mixing board uh, but it's moved ahead and it's really really gone well and and I can't uh, can't say enough about our listener base and uh, everybody who sort of interacts has given us um, suggestions and uh, ways we can improve the program uh, so as we move ahead here it's gonna uh, it's gonna get even more exciting we're gonna be introducing some new segments we're gonna be introducing some new guests uh, hopefully have some reoccurring uh, analysts and things like that moving ahead but uh, the Northern Miner Podcast is here to stay. It's really exciting. And uh, once again, you as a listener are the most important uh, part of that equation. So thank you so much. We have a great show this week. Uh, last week, we talked about London Metal Exchange Week. Uh, and this is sort of a gathering in London, England of uh, everybody from all facts, facets of the commodity industry, from the smelters to the downstream to us mining folks, uh, getting together and talking about what they expect from metal prices and macroeconomic variables moving into next year. And we talked a little bit about what the Bank of Montreal was saying from the show, what they were hearing. Uh, they observed that nickel was a big buzzword. They talked a lot about technology minerals like lithium cobalt etc um so we're bringing in a great guest this week uh chairman and ceo of cobalt 27 capital anthony maluski uh, and anthony was actually at lme week so uh he has some stories from the floor uh he'll tell us sort of what he's hearing um, about nickel, uh, we talk about nickel. It is uh, it is buzzing these days, uh, but also we'll talk lithium, copper, uh, cobalt, of course, um, and uh, many other things. So Anthony's a great guest. It's about a fifteen minute chat uh, that we'll run a little bit later in the show. And uh, if you're into that technology metal space and how supply demand fundamentals might be shifting with the onset of uh, heavy lithium ion battery usage in electric vehicles or EVs, this is a must listen. Uh, Anthony's got some really good insights, some numbers for us uh, on what's coming up in terms of. Uh, demand for things like nickel, copper, lithium, cobalt, etc. But before we dive into our segment with Anthony, let's take a look at our news and notes for the week, wherein we glance at the major news items that have come across the wire and take a look at what analysts are saying about macroeconomic conditions and commodity prices. 
Gold was down about six bucks at the time of recording, trading at $1,275.53 per ounce. Silver followed suit, down 31 cents or 1.8% at $16.92 per ounce. Furthermore, copper was down just over 2% or 7 cents at $3.09 per pound. Finally, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was down 21 cents at US $57.14 per barrel. Turning back to gold, we received a note from Canaccord Genuity this morning entitled A Golden Opportunity, Adding Gold Exposure, Positive Seasonality, a Tailwind. Uh, Canaccord is recommending adding exposure to large cap gold names as both the S&P TSX Global Gold Index RTF, aka the XJD, and gold are attempting to rally from important support. Furthermore, silver closed above the 50 and 200 day moving averages yesterday, confirming the short and intermediate term trend are up. Canaccord adds that the XJD is, quote, seeing early signs of technical improvement and that gold appears to be rallying from important support near $1,262 per ounce. Analysts view this as a, quote, short-term trade idea that could transform into an intermediate-term hold if we start to see strong buying volume come into the gold space. They compare it to what we have seen in the iShared S&P TSX Capped Energy Index ETF, XEG, over the last two weeks, as West Texas Intermediate Crude has rallied. Meanwhile, Scotia Capital analysts note that gold continues to be, quote, trading in a relatively tight range close to the $1,275 per ounce level. Scotia says that this could likely be the norm as the market approaches the impending December U.S. Fed rate hike. With the U.S. dollar and global equities continuing to exhibit strength, an escalation in geopolitical risk might, Scotia says, be necessary to sustain gold's momentum or push it up beyond its current range. And finally, BMO Capital Markets and analyst Colin Hamilton have provided us with some reflections and wrap-up thoughts on LME week in terms of the base metal complex. BMO notes that in their meetings with copper producers, they were feeling quote, quietly confident heading into the week. By Wednesday and Thursday of LME week, however, copper producers were, quote, becoming exuberant. Uh, BMO says that there is now a general agreement that, quote, the copper market will once more be roughly balanced next year. Uh, The bank notes that no one seems to be running models sub $3.18 per pound copper through their internal expectations for 2018. So that equates to roughly $7,000 per ton. So that's sort of uh, the deck price deck we might be looking at for copper heading into 2018 that is once again at three dollars and 18 cents per pound bmo concludes that if they had to predict what quote the main story would be at lme week next year it would be the potential for a significantly tighter copper market heading into 2019 and that pretty much wraps up our news and notes. Uh, so let's hop on over to our segment with Anthony Maluski, the chairman and CEO of Cobalt 27 Capital. Uh, we'll chat with Anthony about uh, some of the things he heard at LME Week, uh, some of the presentations he saw and conversations he had on the floor. We'll also talk supply demand fundamentals on things like lithium and cobalt, as well as what impact this no, uh, this new sort of technological revolution driven by lithium ion batteries and electric vehicles might have on base metal complex materials like copper and nickel so we'll dig into all that fun stuff uh, during this around 15 minute chat Uh, so i'll roll that now and i will be back after the break
And today we are joined online by the CEO and chairman of Cobalt 27, Anthony Maluski. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. Matt, thanks a lot for having me. Um, so exciting times, obviously. Uh, we're hearing this buzzword cobalt uh, a lot, um, and it's uh, only gotten hotter, it seems, over the last little while, uh, in in contrast to maybe something uh, like lithium, which is uh, a little bit more mixed, but the cobalt story seems to be really taking off, uh, especially in terms of, we saw that big story coming out of Ontario, uh, where Cobalt Ontario, the town, has got all this attention in Bloomberg and stuff uh, because of this big story. So Anthony, uh, being somebody uh, in, in that industry, I wanted to first start out with Cobalt 27. Uh, it's a bit of a unique story, uh, the company and sort of the strategy you're using here. Uh, so why don't you fill our listeners in on uh, what exactly Cobalt 27 is? Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, we'll give you a quick update here. So look, Cobalt 27 is 2,160 metric tons of cobalt uh, trading at a premium to NAV. You know, when we created the vehicle, we had really anticipated um, – the the overwhelming demand for electric vehicles and wanted to figure out a way to play that. And so we wanted to create a vehicle that was really Uranium Participation Corp meets Silver Wheaton or Franco Nevada. And so the first stage of that was to put together the physical component, you know, the, the cobalt tons. And we did that at the IPO and it was a great success, you know, really a team effort with the banks and the funds and the partners. And so we've got that kind of core now of our NAV, that $230 million of NAV from the physical. And now the next step is to go out and do the streams and, and the royalties. And so, um, you know, we've been very actively out looking for, um, you know, large streaming transactions. We're in discussions and really have been in discussions now for the better part of a year with a number of counterparties looking to looking to stream uh, Cobalt. Because the way that we look at it is that, that first leg, that IPO, it, it gave us kind of a foothold and open the door for us. But now in order to get the liquidity and the scale, we need to do big transactions. And so the vehicle is a little different than, you know, some of the things that you're seeing going on in the industry in Australia and up in Cobalt, Ontario, which by the way, are really interesting. Um, and the reason it's different is because we're underpinned, our NAV is underpinned by a physical asset. And so, you know, when the upside in, um, in a lot of these exploration plays, is is material and significant. There's also significant downside. I mean, you can miss on a whole. Whereas with us, you know, we really trade more in line with with cobalt and and the fundamentals of the commodity, and so our downside is fairly limited. You know, cobalt today is trading at thirty dollars. The the twenty year inflation adjusted average is twenty four. So you have a pretty limited downside. Um, but we're probably not going to go up 20 times either. You know, we're going to move with that commodity, and so it's really a, a unique vehicle focused on uh, conservative investors who want exposure to to cobalt. And it's interesting, yeah. I mean, you you mentioned about thirty dollars. Some of the long term price decks I'm looking at, I think Canaccord and some other ones, 2017 through 2025, have about a US thirty seven to forty dollar per pound uh, target. So just to sort of contextualize uh, some some of the price decks the analysts are using. Um, but Anthony, I mean, so let's let's dig into a little bit into this cobalt market because it's really interesting to me. Um, obviously, it's it's fairly scarce. Uh, we know that a lot of it comes out of um, you know disputed areas in the Democratic. Democratic Republic of Congo, etc., which uh, I think the numbers I have, more than 50% of the world's current production of cobalt comes out of the DRC. Um, so as it's such a scarce material, I mean, um, do, do you out there talking to people trying to negotiate these streams? I mean, is there a lot of this stuff coming or is there is there a lot of optionality for you guys in terms of who you're negotiating with? 
You know, so um, there's a couple questions in there. I think the first one is you hit you hit it right, the nail right on the head. That this is uh, this is a commodity which is definitely constrained by the fact that 99% of it globally comes from either copper or nickel production. In other words, you know, the only real primary mine in the world is in Morocco. And over half of it, as you indicated, comes out of out of the Congo. So it's it's kind of a tough starting point. Uh, we're looking at situations where, uh, you know, the cobalt to us is material, but but to a to a major is a relatively small part of their balance sheet, uh, and in many cases, you know, analysts are not giving them credit for it. So you can take. Um, what might be a zero on one part of their balance sheet in terms of what where analysts look at it, and you take that same capital that we give you and you move it to another part of the balance sheet to your copper and nickel mine, depending on, on what you're doing, and you can get a, a material a material kind of benefit for that money. So I think we have a specific strategy to actually um, benefit the miners, the large miners who who are producing cobalt by by shifting capital across the balance sheet. So that's kind of specific to what we're doing, but. I will say that there's just more generally, you know, one of the problems with with um, the industry is is getting visibility on where cobalt's coming from. You have Katanga in the Congo, which is a Glencore mine, coming online, you know, late 2018, and then you have the RTR project, formerly Kawesi Tailings by ERG, which is formerly ENRC, you know, coming on sometime late next year as well. So you have two big projects, but I think the market is really you know, asking itself, like, what is the project after that? You know, if if the electric vehicle story happens at a fraction of the pace people are talking about, you know, we need more cobalt and we need it kind of in that three to five year time horizon. We were talking a little bit about the supply side dynamic, and obviously there's a bit of a, you know, restriction on that in terms of its ties to, like you mentioned, nickel and copper. But then you turn to the demand side, um, and we talk a little bit about what Volkswagen's been saying, uh, issuing, a, looking for a minimum of five years of fixed price supply tenders. Uh, we hear about what Tesla's doing. Um, so maybe, Anthony, you could talk a little bit about to what you're hearing out there in terms of the demand side and what we're looking at here over the next, let's say, decade. Yeah, so so uh, I think it's really interesting. So you, you highlighted the Volkswagen tenders. I would tell you that there are at least two other automobile makers out there looking for supply. Um, if you just think about the market, the, the market today is 100,000 metric tons. About half of that market goes into batteries. Uh, batteries more generally, that would include cell phones. Now, if you take the 2025 consensus view of electric vehicle penetration, you know, you're going to need somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 to 250,000 metric tons of cobalt with 100% of it going into the electric vehicle market. So there's a tremendous amount of cobalt that, that actually needs to be um, found, developed, and produced. Now, there, there is some relief, and I'll tell you, the relief is really going to be in the form of the changing battery chemistry. Right now, there are two primary chemistries out there. The one is called the nickel-manganese cobalt, NMC. The other is the NCA. The NCA is the um, chemistry of choice of Tesla. And then the balance of the world is using the NMC. And the NMC battery is really, uh, you know, today it's a 622, six nickel, two cobalt, uh, two, two manganese, two cobalt, just changing over from a, a kind of a, a 523 as we speak. That change is happening. The next generation of, of chemistries is an 811, which is eight part nickel. One part manganese, one part cobalt. Now, you know the general consensus view of that rollout was four years. You know, I kind of think that we're going to see uh, that get pulled forward. But 
however you cut it, the market is going to be very tight. And when I look at cobalt, I look at it like any other commodity. There's an incentive price. And we can debate what that incentive price is, but I think that what you're going to see is the market will find an incentive price, which is higher than today, and that will incentivize new projects. You know, the, There's a couple um, nickel laterite projects in Australia, which will be built. There's a project in Idaho in the U.S., and, and there's one in the Northern Territories, and then you have all the exploration going on around um, you know, Cobalt, Ontario. So you know, I think what you have is a commodity that was really stationary for you know for 20 years you had a, a steady growth out of the super alloy industry which is really the jet engine industry and then you had a, a boom around 2008 from cell phones otherwise you've had a market which hasn't had a lot of interesting things and then about 12 months ago you had the demand from electric vehicles become real and so like all commodities you have a new you have a kind of a steady supply a brand new form of demand and you're going to need the price to move higher to incentivize new projects and new technology. And I think that's what we're going to see over the next 18 months. And that's interesting. I mean, from a business development side, specific to Cobalt 27, Anthony, I mean, is it going to come, you were mentioned some online projects from majors that maybe have unrealized value in terms of Cobalt, um, but also you're mentioning a little bit about development and exploration. I mean, is that something that you guys are really actively looking towards in terms of maybe looking at project financing and things like that? You know, not exploration. That's definitely not our game. But, you know, we certainly, you know, keep an eye on projects like Ecobalt and, and um, Fortune and then a handful of other projects. I would say that, that the immediate focus of our business model, you know, are the handful of streaming transactions, you know, the smallest of which would be a couple hundred million dollars that, that are sitting out in front of us. And that will take us a year just to get a couple of those done. So, you know, I think just where we're at in the market, where we're at in the cycle, we're going to be able to have a shot at some of these big material producing um, projects. But but once we get through a few of those, then I think our attention will turn to some of these development projects out there. Uh, yeah, and that's really interesting. I mean, looking forward, it'll be interesting to see where, like we said, that next generation of cobalt supply is going to come from. But uh, And I know we've been talking a lot about cobalt because it's the namesake of your company, but you're, we're hearing nickel come up a lot. And I've heard you mention it two or three times today. Um, and I was just uh, following some stuff that were coming out of the London Metal Exchange week uh, in terms of what they were talking about, the big metals coming down the pike, and nickel keeps coming up. Um, is that something you're looking at as well? Uh, absolutely. So so I was at LME week, and um, you know, each year there's a theme or a message that comes out of LME week. And you know, th- this year it was it was nickel and copper. Uh, nickel Valley. There's a presentation that I saw going around from Valley showing a two million metric ton deficit of certain type of, of nickel. In fact, you already have a bifurcation in the nickel market. You have um, NPI nickel pig iron deposits, which aren't really interesting, and then you have nickel sulfide deposits, which create a sulfate, uh, which is then sold on into the chemicals industry. And and you know, as I said a moment ago, the you know, anyone who tells you that some new battery technology is going to come and displace the lithium-ion battery in the next eight to ten years in, in automobiles has an agenda or they don't know what they're talking about. Um, when you go and you talk to automobile makers, what they'll tell you is they can tell you the models of their vehicles for the next four to five years and the lead time to, to approve these batteries and to make sure they're safe from fire significance. So when you're talking about evolution and change, we're really talking about chemistry changes. And the next big evolution in the chemistry is the 811. And and what you see in that change is manganese and cobalt units transferring into nickel units. And so actually, um, nickel is going to come under tremendous pressure in the coming years 
and and you know certain types of nickel i think will be in deficit you know in only a few years and by the way copper interestingly uh is going to have the same type of pressure although slightly different because the size of the copper market is so much bigger and so what you're going to see in the copper market is the big hedge funds and the big money will play copper first because it's a deeper more liquid market now having said that in 2025 on consensus views of electric vehicle penetration you can still have between 6 to 10% of copper demand coming in the form of electric vehicles and by the way we haven't even touched on today like what does this mean for the infrastructure if if there really are this many new EVs on the road and we also haven't touched on um Another very important theme, which is just um, electrification of our homes through batteries. You know, the Tesla Powerwall is a battery which sits at your home, which is a lithium-ion battery that looks much the same as the battery inside of your Tesla. So analysts and investors are really focused on electric vehicles. But interestingly, the trade is much bigger than that because of infrastructure and also the implications of the battery storage um, technology, which is now rolling out simultaneously. Yeah, and you actually, funny enough, you got out ahead of me there. That was my next question on uh, uses for these minerals outside of, of, of EVs. Um, but Anthony, I want to, as someone who's involved, obviously, in that sort of, I call it the technological mineral market, um, we also hear a lot about lithium. And I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit uh, on, you know, it was sort of hot before the rest of this was really hot. Um, so I'm just wondering, what's your stance sort of on lithium right now? Yeah, so if you take the, the basic numbers on lithium, what you see is in 20, and I just, Use 2025 because for whatever reason the market has chosen that as the as the as the the bulk standard for for dates. So, in 2025, if you um, believe the consensus view once again, which is eight to 12 percent um, penetration, then the lithium market needs four times today's annual production. So, what I would say about lithium is is it's more nuanced. Um, I think that the mid cap lithium names are going to experience a wave of M and A. You know, Rio Tinto created a special unit to look at at um, you know commodities like lithium. You know, you have you have targets like Galaxy out there that that are these mid tier producers now. I mean, at some moment someone's going to take them out or or try. Then you have option plays like LSC that are these huge land packages. So, I think with lithium it's a more nuanced approach. But the actual future for lithium over the next five to six years is extremely bright. I think what scares investors about lithium, and, and it's definitely worth thinking about and considering, is that lithium in some ways is reminiscent of iron ore in the last cycle, which is that it's a primary commodity which is ubiquitous, and you can oversupply the market eventually. And, and probably that will happen in lithium. I just think that the time horizon for that to happen is a lot longer than people think. I think the other issue with lithium is, you know, and I'm just making up a number, but if there are 200 TSX companies, only 15 of them have real projects or whatever the numbers are. In other words, there's a lot of promotes out there which which are, are not interesting and people should should avoid them. But certainly in the mid-cap producing space, in the near-term production space, there are a lot of, of good names. Um, at the highest level, the Albemarle's. I mean, this, this stock trades like water and it's uh, an incredible vehicle. And that's interesting as well. In the small microcap space, there are names which guys should look at. You just have to be a little bit more discerning. So, I do think that in the coming years, you know, the M and A, the M and A kind of um, thesis will be probably one of the more interesting theses because you're going to see a consolidation among these producers. 
that's sort of the impression I was getting is is the supply side on the lithium stories a little bit different. Obviously, it's not quite as um, prevalent in the the as we talked about the battery chemistry, right? Uh, as as something like like you said, nickel or even cobalt for that matter. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, but yeah, Anthony, I would like to thank you once again for joining us. That was an absolutely great chat, and uh, we'd love to have you on again. Thanks a lot. Um, great, great to have you on. If you ever any questions, let me know. And welcome back into studio, folks. Uh, I'd like to thank one more time Anthony Maluski, the chairman and CEO of Cobalt 27 Capital Corp, for sitting down with us to talk everything technology. Yeah, dig into uh, what that groundswell of electric vehicles, lithium-ion batteries, and related green and technology might mean for the supply-demand fundamentals of not only technology minerals like lithium and cobalt, but also broader industrial minerals like copper and nickel. Always interested in what Dr. Copper is saying. So uh, some bullish sentiment there uh, in terms of some of those base metals moving into next year and through to 2019. So thanks again to Anthony, and we will keep our finger on the pulse of that evolving story in terms of what these new technologies might mean for the base and broader metals complex and minerals complex for that matter. So let us forge on ahead to our next segment, and this is uh, another new one actually. I'm excited. Uh, we are unveiling the sponsorship spotlight this week, and I'm uh, I'm excited about this one for really twofold reasons. Uh, firstly, uh, it provides a nice platform for our sponsors and folks who are really supportive of our show uh, to sort of get involved and uh, talk to us about what's going on uh, on more of the supplier side of the equation. Uh, and that, that leads into the other reason, which is uh, why I'm excited. And that is uh, during these segments, we'll get to talk to people who are involved, really involved uh, with the implementation and development of some mineral technologies and mining technologies that might change the way the business is actually done. So we'll be talking to innovators and uh, suppliers who are working across the spectrum of mines and exploration and development to design new technologies and practices that might improve the way we mine, both in terms of efficacy, so how well we can make profit margins, but also socially uh, in terms of making mining safer and more sustainable. So to uh, kick off our inaugural sponsorship spotlight series, uh, I get to sit down with a company I'm really excited uh, that is involved in our industry and uh, is doing some really cool looking things with big data uh, and machine learning, and that's IBM. Um, and I had a chance to sit down and chat with a few of the IBM folks at our Progressive Mind Forum uh, to uh, take a look forward at what might be coming down the pike uh, in terms of big data, machine learning, their IBM Watson technology, and the partnership with Goldcorp. Uh, you may have caught some of this in more detail during Leslie's Geology Corner last week uh, when she uh, brought together the IBM and Goldcorp folks to talk about uh, what they're looking at in terms of big data and uh, uncovering new uh, discoveries and exploration techniques, etc. So this week, uh, I get to sit down with Kevin Reardon, who is Energy and Mining Advisor at the IBM Natural Resources Solutions Center in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the intersection uh, between what IBM's doing and the mining community. We're going to talk about uh, <laughs> the education process between uh, the miners sort of looking to uh, apply uh, more advanced analytical to and AI techniques uh, to their exploration and development 
development and production activities, uh, what IBM is learning about natural resources as they move into uh, a greater uh, sort of role in this segment of the commodity market, uh, etc. So it's a really exciting way to kick off this uh, sponsorship uh, spotlight idea for us. Uh, and we're always really excited to do work with IBM. Uh, so uh, let me kick off our first ever sponsorship spotlight. I have a new theme song for it uh but uh i will run my interview with kevin it runs i think just over 10 minutes uh, and then i'll be back after the break to wrap up the show welcome to welcome to welcome to the sponsorship spotlight sponsorship spotlight thanks for joining us kevin well, thank you. Um, and just to kick off, uh, we were talking a little bit off off tape here, uh, just a little bit about how maybe IBM isn't a name people commonly associate with the mineral extractive industries. Um, and so maybe just to kick off, talk a little bit about the intersection between what IBM's doing and the mining industry in Canada, or, or globally for that matter. Sure, I think the timing is right too. I mean, mining, I'm 30 years in mining prior to joining IBM. so. I think that the timing is right now. The mines are pretty slow to adopt technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, the equipment got bigger over the course of time, but the actual adoption of technology to be able to advance and help either increase production, reduce costs, or improve safety, mm-hmm. um, I think now is the right time. The, the folks are recognizing that technology is advanced to the point where it actually can help them and enable them to, to meet these needs that they're, uh, the miners are having in, in the industry. Um, I wish I had the access to what I see now at IBM 10 years ago. <laughs> I would have made my job tremendously easier, um, probably would have been a, uh, you know, a lot less headaches. Yeah. Um, the technology advanced now that we can actually take advantage of it. I mean, the big data, the ability to be able to look at and consume vast amounts of data and get insights from it is tremendous today. In the past, either as a geologist or miner, you just can't retain all that that you read and see. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the IBM Watson platform that we're developing, I really do believe can be an enabler in the next uh, few years. And it's interesting because sort of the buzzword we hear from our industry is productivity. And, and, and the issue that they're dealing with, obviously, is falling head grades, uh, ore bodies that are deeper, etc. So this is something that, that you're looking at in terms of what Watkins can do to help our business? Yeah, I mean, yeah. think about the, you know, any mining company that's, that's doing exploration drilling, um, to be able to consume all that information, find insights in it. I mean, ultimately, it's about teaching Watson to think like a geologist. Okay. Um, yeah. And we've had some some you know, really good work done with uh, oil and gas companies, uh, particularly Woodside in Australia. And there's a great quote in the video that says, you know, um, we're teaching teaching Watson to think like an engineer. Watson's teaching us to think like a thousand engineers. Yeah. And I see the same thing happening in, in the... Um, mining space, the exploration, etc. We're going to be able to teach Watson to think like a geologist and then it'll just teach everybody else to be thinking like a geologist. And so reams and reams of data that have been captured for decades in some cases, some of the mining companies have been around 50, 60 years in the Canadian landscape. I mean, they have information that, you know, nobody's even looked at for decades. Mm-hmm. But there's, there is information in there that can be extracted and utilized in what they want to do next, explore next, or expand the horizon that they're currently mining. So I do see that that is going to be a real game changer for the companies that get in. And it's interesting, I think it was an SAP statistic that I saw that that miners only utilize about 1% of the data they generate, uh, which is just crazy to me, that that, that they're generating that much data and not using any of it at all. And I mean, what sort of, in your opinion, 
as far as the challenges, why have they been so slow to adapt, and what are some of the challenges IBM's dealing with in engaging miners? It's a good question. Um, why have they been slow? I think for the most part, miners want to see somebody else do it first. Okay. That's been my, my experience in my entire career in the mining industry, is, well, we're not going to go and do that because we haven't seen it proven somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, whoever gets, like, I mean, the work we're doing with Goldcorp, mm -hmm. They're first. Yeah. Um, you know, if they show positive results, they are already start, starting to show positive results. I think others are going to wake up and say, "Oh, we better get into this. Um, are we missing something? Is there something here we need to look at?" And I do believe that it will it will start to uh, expand uh, very very quickly. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that you know the capabilities that we have in the big data space with our Watson platform, um, there is just so much untapped information that has been captured and we haven't seen the insights taken from it. And I think another big sort of um, word or, or if you want to say buzzword or, or, or sort of idea that I hear about a lot is standardization. Um, and, and from that point of view, there's, there's so many different geological <laughs> programs and softwares and, and then you get into engineering and you're looking at a whole other suite of things. Um, is, is that something IBM deals with or looks at in, in terms of all this different disparate information that you have out in the mining space? Yeah, I think some of the numbers I've seen, because we're utilizing, we have a partnership with uh, MineRP, a South African-based company, and, and uh, we're actually uh, doing some really good work with them. So that that's a very... Um, advanced partnership that we have. The numbers that are coming out are something like 323 different platforms, <laughs> 93 companies that provide, you know, some sort of geological mining tool. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's overwhelming for for any industry, let alone, you know, the mining industry that tries to try to, you know, get standardized. And you'll see guys that'll work in one, go to the next company, and they're starting all over again. Yeah. Because the tools and the platforms they're using are completely different. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the bases of it are, are more or less the same, um, but what we're trying to, to do is, yeah, can we get to a standard where, you know, mine A and mine B can utilize the same information? Mm -hmm. Today, that is very tough. Yeah. Because it's stored differently, it's captured differently, it's, you know, it's paper documents here, it's electronic documents there. So, um, to me, that's the next evolution of where mining companies can go for sure, is getting to a standard platform. So from mine to mine to mine, even within a company, mm -hmm. today they can't even share their information. No, yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting to me, I mean, obviously I, I'm hinting or, or hearing a hint of there's going to be an education here. There's going to be a serious learning curve for the mining industry. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, if from IBM's point of view, uh, how do you approach that at, that sort of drive to educate and help them understand what this data can do? I mean, it does, it is baby steps. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you can't jump to the, you know, a very mature operation if you're, if everything you're doing is currently is, is firefighting. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's working with clients, understanding where they're at on any given site um, globally or, and then strategically, what is their, their organization look like? Um, how quickly they want to go on that journey. Mm -hmm. You know, is it a one to two year journey? Is it a three to five or is it a, you know, seven to 10? Every client is different, um, but I think you gotta start somewhere. You gotta start looking at consolidating your data, cleansing your data, understanding where your gaps in your data might exist. And that's everywhere. That's whether you're in the geology space, maintenance space, you know, even your financials and supply chain records is, Starting somewhere, starting small, but understanding the quality of your data and making sure that as you move to the next steps, you get good, solid information that you're looking at. 
And it's interesting because education is obviously always a two-way street, and IBM sort of entering a new industry um, after having been with oil and gas and, and related extractives. I mean, are you guys learning a bunch from from the mining side? Is there is there a learning curve for you guys on the IBM side as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, be um, more be more frustrating. <laughs> um, I had hoped that this had would move would have moved faster. Yeah. You know, when I joined IBM four years ago, I, I thought, you know, what I see, it's it's going to take take hold and everybody's going to be doing it. I mean, you know, four years later, we're still trying to educate um, the industry. If most people asked, what is IBM's uh, work in mining? They'd go, nothing, you know, because yeah. that's the general, like, what's my IBM got to do with mining? Yeah. So it's a bit of an educational process for sure, but the clients that we're working with that see the capabilities are really starting to get it. And it's interesting to me because um, obviously everyone's sort of uh, behoven to their shareholders in the long run here. So when you're talking about things like return on investment and you're talking about key performance indicators when you're talking about ROIs, KPIs, is is there a, an issue with that with the mining industry where, where you, you know you have this time horizon and expectations from investors how do you sort of communicate that this might be a learning incremental process to companies that are you know have institutional shareholders or share, traditional shareholders who might not understand? I mean it does certainly you have to develop a solid business case I mean, <laughs> Ultimately, that's what, you're, that's what the drive is. I mean, when you're, there's always a challenge for capital funds or operational costs. Um, so every organization's in the same boat. Where am I going to spend the next dollar? It's going to give me the most profit, the, the biggest gain for, biggest bang for the buck. Um, so what we're finding is that, yeah, sitting down with the people that we're dealing with at a particular organization is about developing a solid business case that can demonstrate, you know, and, and they can get in small. You know, you can get into something that you want to do 50,000 or you want to get into 5 million. It depends. Mm -hmm. It depends on their appetite. But but it is really recognizing, is it going to bring them value? Are they going to have more insights uh, tomorrow than they had today? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, typically we start slow with an organization. Usually we do um, pilots or proof of concepts to demonstrate the value and then move on to larger projects within that organization. And so does that sort of naturally segue into your starting more on the exploration side and then do you build towards operations or is it is it sort of you can do you can enter both incrementally at the no, same time? No, I, I think you can enter both incrementally. There, I mean, there are different parts of the organization. Certainly the exploration is the front end, um, but the operational components within a, a mining client today, I mean, they have challenges, they have issues. Um, they're always trying to improve, uh, be it safety, cost, production. All of those are, are part of that, the pillar that they're trying to um, find improvements in. Um, we're hoping just to be able to educate them that we can help them in that ecosystem, mm -hmm. be it from the from the front end exploration or right through the product output. You know, be it on a train or a pipe or whatever the case may be. And that's the big word you hear is predictability as far as ore bodies are concerned. And hopefully down the road they do get that. But uh, well, once again, this has been Kevin Reardon, Energy and Mining Advisor, Natural Resources Solutions Center with IBM. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.
And welcome back. Uh, so you may be able to tell I'm a giant nerd at heart. So that was amazing. Uh, it was great. The entire Progressive Mindform event was awesome because we got to sit down with a lot of sort of leading technology suppliers and talk about the next generation of practices, machinery and equipment and coding and all that kind of stuff that's going to go into the discovery and production of these new ore bodies and mines and everything. So it was really great uh, to sit down with Kevin, talk to uh, IBM about the process of uh, learning to work with the mining industry and and uh, what uh, they sort of see as the upside potential moving ahead. So thanks again to IBM for all the great stuff they did at our Progressive Mine Forum. Uh, now, uh, moving ahead, just to wrap up the show, uh, a few uh, public service announcements, as they say. I mentioned this last week, but uh, no, the week of November 18th, I will be traveling up to Whitehorse to attend the Yukon Geoscience Forum, which, uh, which runs from November 18th through, I believe, November 21st. Uh, and on November 19th, I will be on a panel uh, for investment in the Yukon and I'll be joined by uh, a slate of great uh, great newsletter writers and uh, investment professionals to talk about the state of uh, exploration and development investment in the Yukon. So I will be up in Whitehorse uh, next weekend. Uh, if anyone's up there please do say hello. Uh, should be a great event uh, so if you're going to be uh, in the area please do consider attending at the Yukon Convention Center. Uh, should be a great time. Look forward to it. The other thing coming up that I'm pretty excited about, uh, I will be returning as the Master of Ceremonies for the CIM Vancouver Branch Annual Student Night on November 23rd. Uh, and this is usually a great event. We have a great time uh, meeting with all the students uh, who come out from SFU, UBC, BCIT, uh, etc., etc., etc. Uh, it's always great to meet uh, the next generation of mining professionals. Uh, that is, again, Thursday, November 23rd at the Pinnacle Hotel Waterfront. Uh, if you're interested in tickets to that, please do hop over to my Twitter at Matthew Kievel. Uh, you can head over to Eventbrite and grab tickets. Uh, the keynote speaker this year is Ron Hosschein, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Lundin Gold. Uh, and I know Ron pretty well. I've interviewed him a number of times. Uh, great, uh, great PN, uh, awesome guy to talk to about the business and uh, learning uh, learning the ropes, so to say. Uh, and he will be uh, giving a talk entitled Fruta del Norte, Building a Sustainable Mining Industry in Ecuador. So that should be exciting. Uh, again, that is Thursday, uh, November 23rd from 5.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the Pinnacle Hotel Waterfront. You'll get to hear uh, my smooth voice and uh, have a great time. A couple drinks, uh, talk to some industry professionals, and uh, yeah, make some good networking connections, etc. It's always a great night, uh, so I am looking forward to that. So that's sort of what's coming up on the docket for us as we move into November here. Uh, but once again, I'd like to thank, from the bottom of my heart, all of our listeners for uh, coming along on the ride with us at the Northern Miner Podcast. As usual, please do consider subscribing to the paper. Hop over to northernminer.com. Hit that subscription button. It's only over $200 per year, and that gets you everything. That gets you our Canadian Mines Handbook. That gets you full digital subscription and a newspaper. Uh, and if you're a bigger company, we also do packages for uh, multiple subscriptions or multiple access points and additions. We usually we get that complaint a lot where it's like one person has the, the newspaper and bogarts it at the office. So get more than one copy. If you're, you're like a big company, get a, get a few copies, get a few few uh, few uh, subscriptions so that people aren't like hiding the Northern Miner somewhere in the office. Uh, but also, please do uh, hop over. If you're on iTunes, uh, rate the podcast. Uh, you don't have to give us five stars. I don't expect five stars every time, but uh, any rating helps. Uh, please do comment. And uh, as always, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and check out our YouTube channel as well. Uh, once again, this has been Matthew Keevil. Thanks for coming along for the ride, and I'll talk to you next week week.